From Relativity and our Relativity One partners, this is Uncivil Procedure, the eDiscovery podcast. I'm Anna Srunian, Program Manager on the Event Marketing Team, and here is your host, Relativity Discovery Council and Legal Education Director, David Horrigan. Thank you, Ms. Srunian, and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncivil Procedure, the eDiscovery podcast brought to you by Relativity and our Relativity partners. Today's episode is going to be a fun one. It's a topic that's been somewhat controversial in the field of e-discovery law in the past few years. It's cooperation. Now, you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, what in the world could be controversial about cooperation? Well, when they amend the federal rules of civil procedure to force people to cooperate, sometimes it gets a little bit dicey and, yes, controversial. So we're going to be discussing some of the big cases uh, where cooperation has been an issue. We'll be talking the Bridgestone case. We'll be talking the Progressive case. Even the clean products, that's clean with a K. Uh, Of course, the big thing that kicked it all off to Silva Moore. But we're going to have some more fun stuff, too. We're going to be talking Beyonce's babies, flowing kimonos, and, of course, Funky Town and the Steve Miller Band. But to lead us and guide us down this road to cooperation, we're going to have one of the nation's preeminent attorneys in e-discovery law. He is a gentleman who's been active in not only Sedona, EDRM, just about every other e-discovery organization you can possibly imagine. He's also been the past president of the Harvard Law Association of Western Pennsylvania and the Kenyan College Alumni Association, Pittsburgh region. But first, before we get to our stellar guest, a word from this episode's sponsor, Relativity One Partner, Moray Global. Support for this episode of Uncivil Procedure is brought to you by Moray Global. Moray is an integrated solution provider for legal and compliance teams around the world. Full service and technology enabled, Moray was Relativity's first Relativity One partner in the U.S. when the SaaS product launched. Today, Moray also serves Relativity One users in the U.K. Not just an e-discovery provider, Moray transforms legal and compliance functions into efficient and integral parts of their organization's value chain. Mitigate risk before it manifests and ignite business performance with help from Moray. And now let's meet our guest. He is a stranger to absolutely no one in the world of e-discovery a ubiquitous speaker in conferences across the nation and internationally, and uh, a partner at the international law firm of Reed Smith. David Cohen is the chair of Reed Smith's Records and E-Discovery Group. He's a partner at the firm, and his group is called the Red Group. Dave, I've always thought that that name conjures up images of people in a government bunker with scientists thinking about when the red light's going to go off and how crises can be averted. Dave Cohen, how'd you end up at Reed Smith? Well, uh, I've been practicing for a number of years and uh, mostly as a litigator. And for about uh, my last decade uh, before moving firms, I had focused on e-discovery. And I had some ideas of some things that could be done that were, I thought, innovative in the field of e-discovery. Uh, right at the time where Reed Smith was looking to do some innovative things in e-discovery, so it was uh, a natural, <laughs> natural fit. So I, I moved over uh, to Reed Smith in 2011, and we've had uh, eight pretty good years so far, and uh, looking forward to uh, moving forward. Excellent. We have got two of our old friends who are joining us for this episode, and we have a new panelist. Why don't we meet her first? Melinda, before we get to your great career at the University of uh, Washington University and St. Louis Law School, a great story about your cat, why don't you and Constantine tell our listeners about 
customer success and customer solutions, how they differ and how you guys benefit Relativity customers? Oh, good question. Uh, so the customer success management team, our primary goal is to work with customers to understand why they purchased Relativity and make sure that we are doing what we need to do to help them achieve those goals. And that might involve working with solutions, it might involve working with support, it might involve working with any number of different teams here at Relativity. So we work with solutions, but distinct. And Constantine, what is solutions doing that differs? So the solutions team are the workflow experts, people that have typically come from the industry uh, as, as lit support or legal professionals. And uh, we bring that expertise into Relativity and we help Relativity customers use Relativity. So we work very closely with the CSM team. So if we're onboarding a new customer, the CSM team will be governing the, uh, the process, the relationship, uh, the objectives, that sort of thing and we'll be um, giving that specific product information. Great stuff, thank you, sir. We'll be back to you in a moment. Melinda, of course, back to you. One of the true signs of cooperation is the obligatory handshake. Spending many years on the high school and college debate teams where they force you to shake hands, and moot court in law school where you're forced to shake hands afterwards, often called the most disingenuous handshake <laughs> one has ever experienced. When you say, good debate, good debate. but. Melinda, apparently you are training your cat to experience cooperation like no feline has ever done before. Care to tell our listeners about it? Yeah, you know, it's been winter. It's been spending a lot of time inside. One of the indoor projects that I've been tackling has been teaching my cat how to shake hands for nice. treats, and I am disproportionately proud of his progress. Wow, look at that. All right, Melinda's cat's coming on this show before long. <laughs> and uh, we now move on to, of course, the man, the legend, Constantine Pappas Esquire, who, of course, is senior manager at Customer... Solutions. Yes, all right. Are we sure? We are sure. <laughs> okay. We're very sure. Um, Constantine, thank you, as always, for being here. What's going on in your part of the world, sir? Oh, lots. Um... But I do want to plug again, uh, second uh, month in a row now, that we are hiring. So if you're interested in joining the solutions team, please do go to our careers page. We'd love to talk to you. Excellent. Um, senior manager Daniel Pelk Esquire over on the law firm marketing side. How are you, sir? I'm well. How are you, David? I am fine, thanks, other than having PTSD over spending 10 hours in your fine airport in Minneapolis last oh, week. That's the best part of the city. <laughs> you know, I gotta, let's have a Minneapolis Chamber of Commerce moment. I got to say, if you're stuck for 10 hours in an airport, Minneapolis is not a bad place no. to be. It's basically a giant shopping mall with a few airline tarmacs thrown onto it. It is, and if you have extra time, two stops away from the airport is the Mall of America. And thank you, Daniel Pelk. Ms. Sarunian, how are you today? Great, thanks. How are you? Fine, thanks. What's going on in your part of the world? You know, just getting ready for Relativity Fest. Excellent. This is the second part of our Reed Smith episode, and we're going to do cooperation and litigation. Of course, Nick was an M&A partner for many years. You've got the litigation side handled. But if I come in to meet Reed Smith, I've uh, got the red team, I've got Gravity Stack. How does it all stack out? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, uh, going back to when I joined Reed Smith, we talked about at that time whether it made sense to set up a separate subsidiary of the law firm uh, to handle e-discovery work. And, uh, the time wasn't right then, but uh, a year or so ago, 
we felt the time was ripe to launch a subsidiary uh, that's focused on technology. And by that point, our technology had expanded from the litigation and the discovery side to some other products that we were developing on the business side, contract management, et cetera. And uh, I think they now have uh, five different products uh, as well as a lot of uh, technical and support services. Uh, so they are our technical side of things, um, and I manage the uh, the attorneys and the uh, legal legal side of things. So the red group is the practice group, and Gravity Stack is the subsidiary that's doing the technical side. Exactly. So they do things like uh, processing and hosting, and also have uh, other products, uh, some of which relate to e-discovery, including a great metrics program, uh, oh, Periscope, good. which uh, sits on top of relativity for any of your relativity users who are interested in, uh, in metrics. Uh, so that's something that other law firms have started to use that we offer. And another program that I helped develop called the Anonymizer, which takes personal information out of large quantities of documents uh, and can help with not only redaction, but also things like uh, GDPR compliance and, and other things like that. So we've been developing some products on the side. You know, I am going to regret trying to say this on a broadcast, but is this one of the things that can address the GDPR's pseudo-anonymizing problem? <laughs> say pseudo-anonymizing three times fast. Yes, I got through it once. I'm not chancing it again, sir. I absolutely can. I mean, the great thing about it is, you know, Relativity obviously is all already built to handle very large volumes of, of documents. And what we used to have to do uh, in redaction situations is have human beings go through and page by page redact personal information. And what the anonymizer does is it can uh, anonymize in large quantity. It recognizes names, uh, social security numbers, bank accounts, credit cards, et cetera, and automatically either redacts or, as you noted, uh, pseudonymize. Well, you said pseudonymize. The, uh, the GDPR actually uses the word pseudonymize, which I, I think they just made up. All right. The Honorable David Waxy, the um, judge who is an institution in need of discovery, has often said quite forcefully that people forget that the requirement for zealous advocacy was taken out of the rules in 1983. And there really is no zealous advocacy prohibition for cooperation and e-discovery. Nevertheless, some people think, hey, you know, I am here to represent my client, not to be nice to the other side. And it brings up the question, where does one draw the line between cooperation and taking a stand? Um, Dave Cohen, talk about kids. Where do you draw that line on cooperation, kids? Let's sit down and talk about this as opposed to, hey, kids, why don't you clean your room? Yeah, and, and I think uh, my most valuable training in negotiation and cooperation was uh, raising my three children, uh, so that, that's a good analogy. Um, I remember back to uh, I had a problem with my son. He wasn't getting his homework done. He was watching game shows all the time. And so uh -huh. I thought, you know, I have to approach this tactfully and said to him, Mark, we, re we really need to... Uh, talk about this, getting your homework done, not walking, watching so many game shows. And he says, I'm sorry, Dad, but you failed to put that in the form of a question. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit easier for judges to talk about. I mean, cooperation sounds great. Transparency sounds great. But attorneys have a couple of motives when they're uh, in litigation. And uh, one of them is to represent the interests of their client. That's probably the foremost motive. And um, in uh, e-discovery, that can create a problem in 
uh, you can be taken for a sucker if you cooperate too much and the other side is not in such a cooperative m mood. And I bet your client loves it when you're taken for a sucker. <laughs> they, they don't like it too much. Um, you've heard uh, Judge Peck refer to it, I think, as something like uh, proactive strategic negotiation or something. You, know, something. you don't want to tell your client you're cooperating too much. But in fact, um, in cases where you have big parties on both sides that have similar e-discovery burdens, it's actually possible to cooperate because everybody has something to gain. Unfortunately, there's a lot of litigation out there where the discovery burdens are very asymmetrical. Uh, very often you might have a, a class action case with many plaintiffs against a big defendant, and the plaintiffs have no discovery to speak of, no documents that you're going to get from them, and all the documents are in the hands of your client. And uh, handling those documents is a big expense. We don't have cost shifting in the United States. It's not in the plaintiff's interest to make things easy for you. Uh, sure. the, the more difficult they can make it, the more expensive they can make it, the more your client will be motivated to settle. And so going in with a naive expectation that if you're completely open and cooperative, you'll get the same from the other side, that, that's naive and you can be taken advantage of. So uh, my views are y you should cooperate certainly somewhat with e-discovery. It's, it's the both sides advantage because if you fight about everything, it's just going to get more expensive for both sides and you're going to end up with worse outcomes. But you also have to not be a sucker. You also have to cooperate strategically, not let the other side um, take over your obligations and responsibilities in terms of your discovery burdens. So I, I was once on, speaking of Judge Peck, I was once on a panel with him sort of explaining my views on transparency. And he said, David, it doesn't really sound like you're talking about transparency, more like maybe translucency. <laughs> <laughs> and I, th I thought that's, uh, that's really a good way of looking at it. I don't think in those asymmetrical cases you want to be completely transparent. You want to be more translucent. You do want to cooperate, you do want to be reasonable, but you don't want to let yourself be taken advantage of. Sure. You know, Dave, I mentioned to our listeners um, that you um, speak at a lot of conferences. When TAR was big, right after DeSilva War came down in 2012, and everybody was talking TAR in every conference panel, somewhere, someone, and our executive producer, Brendan Ryan, is here, so I suspect this part may get cut from the broadcast. Mm -hmm. But somebody started this tradition of talking about transparency or translucency in tar as being the opening of the kimono. And we're like, what in the expletive? And there was one other person who speaks a lot at conferences like, can we stop this kimono stuff now? And this is before all the weirdism came out in the past 12 months about kimonos. Am I the only one who heard that everywhere? No, I, I remember it. Uh, I don't mind the analogy so much. Uh, you know, there is something to be said for there. Are, there's such a thing as too much information. To right. My, my That's exactly <laughs> what that conjures up, sir. And and you know, I, I remember um, even before hearing that expression, being involved in some cases where the attorneys use the expression, you know, you, you don't want to let the other side get into your underwear about all this stuff. I mean, the fact is that in discovery. You are, the point of discovery is to find information relevant to the claims and defenses in the litigation. And when discovery becomes discovery about discovery, it's gone too far. And that's one of the great benefits of the uh, new federal rules amendments that were enacted in December of 2015 
is they've really cut down on, on uh, discovery about discovery. You know, in order to be discoverable, it has to be relevant to the relevant and proportional to the claims and defenses of the parties. So while, while judges do expect you to talk about those kinds of things, you don't need 15 days of depositions on how a party conducted its document search. Um, you know, the, it's just ends up being wasteful. You know, there are also historical examples of cooperation. And, um, you know, fun fact, we mentioned that you're, in addition to being an alumnus of Harvard Law School, an alumnus of Kenyon College. Is it true that the sports teams there are really still the men's teams are the lords and the women's teams are the ladies? It is still the lords and ladies. Um, and, uh, you know, there are obviously some colleges out there with much worse Nicknames. Well, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, we're already, we've gone through kimonos, so I probably shouldn't <laughs> mention yeah, yeah. But, well, but Williams College. Oh, thing, all right. We're going back to kimonos, gang. What's all right. going on in the kimono? What yeah. You mentioned that there's some, like, talk around kimonos. Exactly. Well, what once again, Brendan Ryan is going to hit the censor button, but the problem no, is... No, he likes this. Oh, <laughs> well, there, there, there's an issue in technology-assisted review about how much of your methodology you should be forced to turn over to the other side. Like the mm -hmm. famous thing in the early days of TAR, it's like, I want to see your seed set. And the response would be from the defense, or I should say, not the defense, the producing party, like, hey, we didn't tell you how we searched a file cabinet in the old days. Why should we tell you how we're conducting our technology-assisted review? So the idea was, should you open the kimono? How did it get right, to such a right. pervy place? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out well, the link between e-discovery and accessing undergarments. <laughs> well, you know. That, or that, lack thereof. We couldn't <laughs> figure out who came up with it, but people took the kimono and ran with it. It's been around for quite a while, actually, and I believe the original, this, this is not something I'm proud of knowing. You! It's you! Constantine <laughs> Pappas! No, I said of knowing, not starting. Yeah, so, uh, no, it, 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 I think the expression was peek under the kimono, because the idea was in feudal Japan that the geishas would, like, try to, like, I don't know, stir interest by just giving you a glimpse real quick. Oh. And so that's the historical, cultural background for that saying. Interesting. It, it is horribly outdated yes. and right. offensive, but that's where it comes from. Um, I don't know why it's gotten such uh, traction Lately, but it Resurgence. does seem, yeah, it just, it's not the well, time to bring it back. I clearly, would say. it must have been a Kenyan college basketball game where the Lords commend, My lady, would you mind if I peeked underneath? And, and the kimono actually is a is a unisex garment. I suppose right, we could make exactly. some arguments in the other direction, but no, I think it's typically about that specific situation. Any other history on cooperation that's worth discussing? You know, one thing I'd say, you used a great example, uh, technology-assisted review of predictive coding. Um, if you recall, another thing they were talking about five or ten years ago was that this was going to be the end of human document review. Right. That by, you know, certainly within a few years, uh, human document review was going to be obsolete. And we know, uh, you particularly at Relativity know that that right. is very much not the case. Part of the reason for that, I think, is the uh, the fact that although judges have said TAR should not be held to a higher standard than any other discovery, in fact, it is held to a higher standard. And if you are forced to give too much information to the other side, and if they can nitpick every piece of that information, you can end up spending more money in cases with predictive coding than with traditional review. And I think that's one of the barriers that has pre prevented um, 
uh, tar from reaching all of its promise. I, even if, even in a perfect world, you'd still have continued document review because you still need to train predictive coding and do quality control and so on. But um, predictive coding would have made a, a much bigger dent into the a lawyer review industry if it hadn't been for um, too much uh, expectations of transparency. And any uh, opposing lawyer worth his or her salt can find something to nitpick about with any uh, with any discovery plan, especially a predictive coding discovery plan. And that's Lawyers? a big reason. Yeah, that's a big <laughs> reason why the uh, the mandatory disclosure of seed sets has been sort of falling out of favor, is because it was just very obvious proof of a discrepancy as far as the burden. Um, I I do think that initially in the earlier days of tar, that was a concession that was given when. Uh, there was at least one case, and I can't remember which case, where a party was like changing courses midstream, right? right? And yeah. Somebody, I, we'll, we'll look up the citation later, but it's basically they had done they had done manual review for a while. They decided uh, they wanted to use assisted review, and the court said okay, but as a gesture of good faith, uh, in the spirit of cooperation, huh? Huh? They are going to um, be forced to provide those seed documents, but that seems to be more of an exemplary uh, situation these days. Yeah, but that doesn't stop the other side from requesting. I just was in a negotiation within the last couple of weeks in a big uh, case where the plaintiffs wanted our, our seed set, a, a lot with, along with every other detail you can imagine about how we cooperate with that. <laughs> we tried to be translucent. <laughs> we said yes to most of the requests, and we said no to some of them, including the uh, requests that we share. We shared uh, the seed set documents that were relevant and not the seed set documents that were irrelevant seems fair. You know, um, one of the things that they've tried to do, forced cooperation, forced cooperation has never made any sense to me, whether it's tar or anything else, but one of the ways they did it was forced mediation, where you have the, especially in smaller matters, where you've got these two people who are really hating on each other, I don't know, oh, a domestic relations case, a divorce maybe, and they come in and they're forced to say, sort of like that limp debate team handshake, like, yeah, good debate. This is like, okay, we're going to waste everyone's time by trying to mediate. Constantine Pappas Esquire, mm -hmm. apparently there was a big shovel or sometimes somewhere, someplace in a mediation? Yeah, so I was, um, I was a mediator uh, in our uh, ADR clinic in law school. Um, and I mediated personally like very small potatoes cases like uh, forcible entry and detainer cases or small claims cases where mediation really doesn't get you very far because it's such a small amount in controversy that it's like, he owes me $500, what do you propose? I don't give him the $500. I propose he gives me the $500. <laughs> And there's uh, not much to do there. But there was, uh, while I was being trained, uh, I did get to observe a federal judge that had to deal with a, a really, really large mining case down in, in, um, is in Kentucky or southern Illinois, I forget where. Uh, but it was about a shovel. And when I say a shovel, uh, I'm not doing it justice because evidently it was a mining shovel that's like the size of a football field. And uh, the shovel was left just on the property. And uh, this was all about, you know, who was going to pay for its removal. And uh, it was so acrimonious that the parties couldn't even be in the same room with one another. So I was, I was following this federal judge between two conference rooms, and he would, he would work on the terms with one, and then he'd take the message back to the other. And uh, this went on for several hours of him, him just like bouncing back and forth to mediate this dispute. 
Uh, and eventually, uh, to his credit, they reached an agreement, and then he he made the almost mistake of putting them in the same room to seal the deal, <laughs> and they started at it again. He's like, guys, don't f this up. You know, you just you finally got to it. But it was remarkable. It was a remarkable um, use of uh, non-court. Uh, judicial time. Ah. Now, Melinda, apparently you've had some mediation experience as well with our friends at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So was it a kumbaya world with the EEOC? I think uh, very similar to the situation that Constantine just described. It was always the two parties in different rooms at the opposite side of the office, uh, running back and forth between them, delivering messages. They had to go through the mediation before they could sue, so nobody was especially excited to come to an agreement and things could go on for, I mean, an entire day. It's very exhausting. <laughs> I can imagine. Daniel Pelk, any mediation stories from your career in the law? Not from my career in the law, but actually I saw one recently in a travel uh, experience that I had. Um, my family and I went to uh, Jerusalem and we were in front of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is, as you know, one of the most famous, uh, famous churches in, in Christianity. Uh, apparently, the different sects who controlled the church could not agree on who would control it mm-hmm. and who would have their artifacts or who would have their their, uh, their 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 different religious symbols. So they decided to freeze the church as it was at the time that it occurred. And coincidentally, there was someone who was cleaning the outside of the church with a ladder and a bucket, and the ladder and the bucket are still there to this day mm-hmm. after... You know, it was probably 50 or 60 years, the ladder and the bucket are still there. Wow. So uh, mediation and agreement can sometimes take an, an odd form. But uh. So true, so true. Before we leave these topics, taking cooperation to its ultimate conclusion, perhaps, dating opposing counsel? No. Now, no, no. <laughs> now, you and Rachel seem to be a great team. I yes. mean, you'd be uh, stopping sump pumps, finding laundromats in Barcelona. You'd, you'd work as a well-oiled machine, no? Dating outside counsel would be a bad thing. <laughs> Are we in agreement here? Opposing or outside? Um, oh, opposing. 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 But opposing. we could go either way on that. Either, yeah, no matter what. I mean, it's a good rom-com, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Councillor Cohen, care to weigh in? I'm sure there's some rule against that. <laughs> <laughs> um, dating your client, though, is allowed in some jurisdictions. Wow. I mean, it, it talk about zealous advocacy. That would, I mean, if your boyfriend or girlfriend were on the line, I mean, date them, man. You're well, the Cerunian, you're giving me a look like you think that's ridiculous. No, I think it's fine. It's just a weird, uh, it's I don't know. It's a weird thing to talk about. <laughs> I think it would take the disputing the bill to a whole new level, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it can have bad consequences. And that's where it actually has run afoul, is a, a, from back in law school, about, like, if the payment is the dating or right. <laughs> activities adjacent to the dating, then it's absolutely forbidden. But it's certainly if you just happen to be Except dating in Nevada. Someone, well, I, I, I couldn't say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe it is still um, prohibited in many jurisdictions, including Pennsylvania. Uh, well, I shouldn't say dating. Sex with a client. So right. maybe light dating. But Just hang on. <laughs> <Not just. laughs> Keep Which the kimono base are you allowed to go to? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, moving on. We're now going to try to stump the panel. Our first game of this episode, as always, We have three questions, one for each of our three Esquire experts. 
Who would like to go first? Should we let our newest panelist perhaps go first on this yeah, one? Yeah, enjoy. I think so. All right. I'm nervous. Okay. All right, here we go. I'm going to read the fact pattern for you. It's really a question. Then I'll give you hints, as many as you need. Some of my hints are better than others, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. All right. <laughs> Melinda, your question. In archaeological studies of ancient civilizations around the world, anthropologists point to this important ritual as a common starting point to cooperation in early human civilizations. In fact, it continues to be a critical and universal social event today. What is it? Is this going back to the handshake? Oh, it's going way back, probably before, before the then. handshake. It's going back a long way. It is something that people do together. I need another hint. You need a hint. All right. Think Thanksgiving. Ah, eating together? Whoa! The rookie knocks it out of the park. <laughs> well done, it was an counselor. Excellent hint. Ah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> See if it were that easy. Perhaps it was not an excellent hint. Mm -hmm. Maybe Horgan's just out to get the two of you. Yeah, oh, he oh, definitely is. Oh. Bad, bad hints. I think some of the hints just. Uh, Constantine, I'm going to try to be fair. Would you care to go next? I would love to go next. Excellent. Let's go. Companies in one major industry are pairing up frequently to tackle a specific evolving technological challenge, mm -hmm. but they're working together to do it. Uh, the tech is providing uh, expensive and complex, it is expensive and complex to create, but if these partnerships succeed, it could change the daily routine of millions of people. What are they trying to build? I need a hint. All right. One of your better ones. <laughs> Here's one of my better ones. Look out, Mr. Musk. That's and we're not we're not referring to eighties cologne. <laughs> why, all right, why don't I just say rev up that Tesla? Well, it's what auto manufacturers. I mean, uh, you're close. You're so close. Um, it may make the phrase "asleep at the wheel" obsolete. Oh, self-driving cars. Never underestimate the heart of a champion. Constantine Pappas gets it right. I do have the heart of a champion. So, uh, a champion what, though? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> we have still half an episode to ponder that one, Constantine. We'll get back to you in the fourth okay, quarter. We'll circle back. Oh, by the way, speaking of getting back to you, in Bridgestone v. IBM, the court literally used the term changing horses in midstream on tar. But Dave, Constantine, whole team, there is a case before that, which I think is the one you're discussing, and it's annoying me that I can't think of it, but I will put some more thought into it. Is it it's Xerox? like a 2013, yeah, yeah, you know, I, 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 I want to say it's a Seventh Circuit case, too. Oh, is it Xerox? I don't, I just can't remember uh, I digress. It's going to come to me at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, yeah, don't call me. All right, noted. <laughs> Thank you. Daniel Pelk, your opportunity for greatness. Who said the following statement, or who made the following statement, I should say, quote, coming together is a beginning, staying together is progress, and working together is success. 
it must be Constantine Pappas. That that sounds like something you would say, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Very profound. It's profound. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to go with... Uh, uh, mm. It sounds kind of new agey, um, but I'm going to need a hint, David, because I have no idea. All right. You still see his name on most highways and byways in our nation. Is this George Washington? <coughs> Benjamin Franklin? It's got, it sounds like a founding <coughs> father. Keep going. Keep there, going. There's still hope. You, you're, you're, you've got the gender correct. <laughs> awesome. He has a museum. So I've, I've cut the population down to 50%. And you, you've almost got the century correct. <laughs> a- not Abraham Lincoln. You're getting closer in the timeline. Keep going forward. He has a museum in Detroit. Oh. Right? You're saying Henry Ford? Yes! Thanks for the museum in Detroit. That was a good clue. Sorry. (laughs) 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 Oh, my That, not not unlike Mr. Musk or any other hints we may have given, a giveaway, Miss Zerunian. He was <laughs> nowhere near George Washington <laughs> and Henry Ford. I was still with He's president. Out time frame. Yeah. Uh, well, there's that as well. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, seeing on the streets. I'm imagining they road signs, not cars. See, you know what? I thought yeah, about that. Yeah, I guess that. I wouldn't have in thought about street. that either. Yeah, I thought about that. I, it, in your defense, I thought the same way when I first saw that. I should have changed that. Maybe if you had said logo instead. Like yeah, logo, logo yeah. might have given it away. But that's the one that I changed because at first it was just streets and I expanded it to highways and byways thinking that would help, but um, I stand corrected, sir. Yeah, that was unfair. Thank God you have friends like Ms. Sarunian to help you. Cooperation, right? The yeah! <laughs> and now it's time for our next game, which is, of course is Discover the Truth. Ms. Sarunian, if you wouldn't mind, perhaps you would like to explain to Dave exactly what he'll need to be doing in Discover the Truth. I will. So each of our panelists will tell a story about a prenuptial agreement. Two of these prenups are real. One is made up. Pick the panelist whose prenup is fake, and you'll win some relativity swag. I'm really looking forward to these stories. (laughs) Melinda, should we start with you? Yes. Let's start with me. Yay. Um, So this prenup was between Jay-Z and Beyonce. Uh, The prenup states that if they split up after two years, Beyonce gets $10 million. If they stay together uh, every year after that, up to 15, she gets an additional million. Also, she gets $5 million for every baby she has. So very strongly in Beyonce's favor, if true. Counsel, the host has one question here. What does Jay-Z get out of all of this? Doesn't she make to marry Beyonce? What are you talking about? Miss Knowles is certainly a very wonderful woman. But, um, man, she's got to be making as much money as he is. But anyway. He actually makes much more. Really? Yeah, because he's like, he owns all these companies. He's a mogul. He's kind of a mogul. Yeah. Wow. But this money is chump change to her. So that's that's the weird thing. Also true. And she may have to share her money. This could be crap, too. So it's all I made it all up. Who knows? She she may have to share with Destiny's Child, though. Nah, impossible. Yeah. Keep in mind, she's had three kids so far, and they've been married 11 years. Whoa. So $15 million dollars in children. True. She's got to churn she's out some more. That's... I mean, she's fine, even yeah. if this prenup didn't exist. I'm not worried about her, no. Yeah. All right, Constantine Pappas. First of all, let me preface by saying this was 
one of the most fun find the truth topics I've had to Excellent. research. Excellent. And there were some that I just couldn't get enough information on. There was one prenup about a man who ha- had a provision that his wife couldn't throw away his prized snowball collection that was in the freezer. <laughs> oh. Uh, Wisconsin there was, people? There, I don't know. <laughs> Sounds was, like it, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. There was one about how the wife could find the husband $25,000 every time he was uh, rude to her parents. Ooh. <laughs> I like that. There was, uh, what was the third one that was? This, um, the husband was only allowed to watch one NFL football game on Sundays a season. Mm, oh, that that's one. brutal. And I was How thinking much? about you. It was like, was that something that you were subject? Was it? Are you the? <laughs> is it your PII that was uh, redacted in that story? You know, I'm innocent on this one. <laughs> what it, were you saying? I was wondering how much it cost to only watch one football game a year. I mean, that would that well, would be quite the concession. It just it it boggles the mind about. The con- you, you have to imagine the conversation that took place before that agreement, <laughs> yeah. right? And the dynamics of that couple for that agreement to be necessary. I found, right. uh, I found a much worse one. So um, I, I picked the one that I thought was sort of empowering to the woman. But um, on the flip side of that, you had when uh, Tony Romo, the quarterback, was engaged that. to Jessica Simpson. Oh, she ruined his career. She caused him to. Oh, well, Jessica. she perhaps had good reason for that. Why? Given that in the prenup, he proposed a lifestyle clause. The <laughs> lifestyle clause was that during the course of the marriage, she could not be over 135 pounds. <gasps> For every pound over 135, she would owe him $500,000. You're making this I up. I am not. I saw it too. In well, if she had just stuck to that chicken of the sea tuna, <laughs> then yeah, she didn't know. She thought Maybe he deserved it. I mean, yeah. it kind of sounds like it. I he think there's a good a nice reason guy. she didn't marry him. You know what? Yeah. Tony's from Wisconsin. That doesn't sound like us. It's <laughs> not something we would have thought. That's just really surprising. Now, were are there any weight restrictions on him? Like, you end up being some pot-bellied fat None guy. Never publicized. I mean, only from the Dallas Cowboys. Some of the yeah. other ones I saw that weren't celebrities did have it on both sides. But one I saw, like, the man got to gain a lot more weight than the woman did, which was kind of weird. Was it at least proportional? Like, well, I don't. I've not yeah. met them. <laughs> I thought perhaps you were the special master no, <laughs> overseeing this litigation. That sounds like good money. I, yeah, I really. I was looking for a special master of prenup weight clauses. Give me a call. And being like the only non-lawyer here, like I would only think of prenups as like something you would think of with money, like being to protect yourself. Would never guess that you could even consider putting like lifestyle clauses oh, in. Yeah. It's a very a interesting. That's ridiculous. It's an interesting subject it's because, a like, a lot of them are not enforceable, as it turns out. They right. put them in there, and then it'd go before a judge, and right. it's against public policy or whatever, but they, they try to make them stick. There's some, I mean, up. there are some situations where the prenup is just invalid because of the disparity of power between the two people, that they're basically coerced into signing something that they wouldn't otherwise agree to. So it's a very interesting area of law, but it's really hard to get very concrete details because sometimes it's a prenup, but they weren't litigated, so you don't, you know. Not enough PII for David's purposes. Yes. He's all about the PII. So I'm also going to do another celebrity one. This has to do with the divorce of Steven Spielberg, uh, noted director. So his first marriage was to an actress named Amy Irving. They met in 1976. Uh, They were introduced by Brian De Palma, who recommended her for Close Encounters, but she was too young for the role. They lived together for a while, broke up for a while. They started dating again in 1984. Married in 85, 
around when somebody here was born. I forget who that was. That was you, Melinda. So a happy birthday. <laughs> Dave, too. <laughs> All right. Um, when they were married in 1985, uh, they wrote their own prenup on the back of a cocktail napkin uh, with no lawyers or witnesses present. Not notarized. No, definitely not one of the... The stamp on a cocktail napkin would be very interesting. I don't know if it would leave the lasting impression. <laughs> After four years, he started dating Kate Capshaw, his current wife, um, and did us all a favor because she stopped acting when they got married. Harsh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. She did you see Temple of Doom? <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh, no, Willie Scott is not my favorite Indiana Jones uh, romantic foil. So anyway... Um, so they got divorced in 89. Uh, Amy Irving argued the prenup wasn't binding or enforceable since, uh, since there were no uh, witnesses uh, and no counsel present. And the judge agreed uh, the payout was $100 million as a result. Wow. That's Pretty mine. Good. Wow. Not bad. All right, Daniel Pelk Esquire with our third case of the day on couples behaving badly. Like my counterparts, I've also gone the celebrity route because it turns out that's where you find the most information on prenups. Uh (laughs) Going back, one of the most celebrated divorces was the divorce between Demi Moore and Bruce Willis. Mm. And there was a huge question about the ownership of an airplane. So between the two of them, they owned a Gulfstream 4, which those of you who know corporate jets know that it is the Cadillac of corporate jets. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. (laughs) I have one of those. I've got three. They're just (laughs) trying to get rid of one. Um, Their their Gulfstream 4 was custom designed. It had plates. It had dishes that were specific to the airplane. It was a model to behold. Uh, Their prenuptial agreement covered that airplane as one of the main uh, issues. When they broke up, it was stipulated that uh, Demi would own the airplane because she came into the marriage with the airplane. However... It occurred in such a short period of time before the marriage started that Bruce Willis took exception to that part of the uh, of the prenuptial agreement because he thought that airplane was community properly under the state of California. What happened was uh, the district court then examined the prenup and countered that the time frame before the marriage had no bearing that she came into the marriage with the uh, with the jet and she left with the jet, and so now as a result until Bruce could find other accommodations, was flying commercial. Bummer. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Brucey. All right. Dave Cohen, the pressure is on. You are a partner at a major law firm. You are one of the preeminent lawyers in eDiscovery, but you have got a tough, tough assignment today. You're looking back on what we have here on antinuptial agreements. Before we give anything away to you, newsflash. I love it when I'm right because it happens so rarely. I was correct on the corrugated boxes in Judge Nan Nolan. The case we could not think of, clean products. Oh, really? (laughs) Well pulled, David. Thank you. Well, I cheated. I looked it up because it was bugging me so much. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, For our listeners out there, it's Clean Products v. Packaging Corporation of America. And Packaging Corporation of America is the company that made the corrugated boxes. But no, they'd already produced a bunch of stuff, and then they say, the other side says, well, wait a minute, let's use tar. And they're like, dudes, we've already produced all this stuff, and you want us to do it over again? You're harsh so, in our buzz, dudes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But 
I digress. Let me Back, let me just please. interrupt to say two things about that. One yes. is, uh, in that case, if you recall what happened after that, the parties ended up abandoning the use of predictive coding because it, they went through so many days of hearings and so much pain uh, going through that. So that's one of the things that is discouraged use of, um, of TAR. But I think uh, your fact pattern actually then did apply to a case uh, after that couple of years, and I think it was progressive. Yeah. If you go back and look at that, that was uh, a couple of years after Clean Products. Yeah. Um, and there they tried to switch horses, and after agreeing they would do human review, they tried to use predictive coding, and I think the court ended up saying no, <laughs> and ended up making them produce everything that was hit by search terms because they didn't. They ran out of time to do a review. Okay, then the three of us are at loggerheads because the okay. one that I remember. <laughs> is that the court allowed it, but said, at, but as a concession to us allowing this change, you are going to provide the seed documents. Gotcha. So we'll just have to like keep, mm. let the debate there's Probably rage. three. There's probably three cases. I, sus I suspect that's true. All right, you e-discovery aficionados or e-discovery law geeks, um, you've had Bridgestone, you've had Progressive and Clean Products. We'll give you more in our next episode. But back to the antinuptial agreements. Dave, what do you think? Who's telling the truth? Who's not telling the truth? Well, I think that, that all three are great storytellers here, and um, I think this well demonstrates the absolute need for discovery in our system to get the <laughs> things because there's just too much human fallibility in determining uh, the truth or not the truth. I mean, the craziest story was Melinda's story. I mean, five million per baby. I mean, that, that's got to be against uh, some public policy or yeah. something. But it's just crazy enough that, that it might be true. Uh, I'm going to go with um, Constantine's story as the false story, not because there was anything too implausible, but because he was looking at his phone. And if you wanted to fool somebody, you know, he was like he's reading these facts as he's going. Oh. So that, that's going to be my wild guess. But they all did a great job, and any three of them could be the, uh, the faker here. And Ms. Sarunian, the answer is, is Dave going to get some great relativity swag to take home? Well... The fake case was actually Danny's. But you'll get swag anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> what about no yours stakes. was fake? No, well, I, just, I took my notes on my phone rather than putting them on paper. Uh, of course. <laughs> I had to do more with some, less around here. Some of it actually was real. So uh, my wife's aunt was a corporate flight attendant and oh. ended up pulling her plane up next to Demi Moore's plane and got to go inside Demi Moore's and she did have a Gulfstream 4 and mm. did have the plates and dishes and everything, but she said that Demi Moore could not have been nicer or more hospitable, but that's the only part of it that's real. The rest of it's fake. Pretty good. I believe yeah, it. I like <laughs> One of my law school classmates actually um, met her once also and had the same reaction, just the nicest person. Yeah. What was the movie, G.I. Jane? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, we went to law school at University of Florida and they filmed that in an army base between Gainesville and Jacksonville. And this friend of mine walked up to her, and she was just pumping gas, like, by herself with yeah. her shaved head, because they shaved her head for that movie. And he walks up to her and goes, hi, I'm Jack. <laughs> and she just looks at him and smiles and goes, hi, Jack, how are you? And that was it. But she could have been, like, Hollywood-esque and like, yeah, get out of here, Jack. But no, she was quite pleasant. That's yeah. how they talk in Hollywood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, the, the, the message of that movie is it's just kind of so funny how historically, you know, specific it is because now you know women can be soldiers too deal with it you know <laughs> like no one no one today would be like questioning that but i guess yeah. it was quite a point that it had to be made back then before we get off the topic <laughs> uh 
Should now Constantine wait? There could be something else. Should we talk about escape rooms at all? I mean, talk about a level of cooperation one's going to need. Do you feel a need to escape right now? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're a happy band of brothers and sisters here in this room. But you know, these escape rooms are getting popular. Danny Pelk, they've even put one in your neighborhood strip center. They have, yeah, the one in the mall that's right, right near our house. Wait, wait, wait. Let's back that up. S- strip mall. Let's Has say. anyone ever heard? Is it, wait a minute. I know that we've had this whole kimono thing going on, but. You guys have heard the term strip center before, right? Clearly strip not. mall. The, the kimono has been thrown We're up Midwest and wide now. Is it strip mall? Is strip center the East Coast term? I a think strip it might shopping be a center. Kind of are you like? It's, you know what's interesting is that it, club, if, if it's a colloquial thing, David, there is one. Uh, you know, my favorite escape room is you brought up Judge Waxy before, and he has uh, his version of the escape room when lawyers can't agree on mm-hmm. discovery issues. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard him tell this story. I have, but please tell our listeners. <laughs> so what he does in that situation is he will put both counsel uh, into a room together to, for a negotiation, have them videotape that negotiation, and at the end of that session, either they are going to reach an agreement or he is going to sanction either one of them or possibly both of them after watching the videotape. And he's now done that many times and has said that he's never had to sanction either party because ultimately that, um, that solves the problem when they know that they have to reach agreement and when they're being videotaped. And he said he never understood that until he had a, uh, uh, I think it was a physicist explain to him that uh, Lawyers are like uh, atomic particles that they behave differently when being observed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sounds sort of like the judicial thunderdome. You've got Mel Gibson and Tina Turner hanging out there and two go in, one comes out, and uh, maybe the videotape takes care of that as well. (laughs) And now, Ms. Sarunian, another word from this episode's sponsor, Moray Global. Support for this episode of Uncivil Procedure has been brought to you by Moray Global. Murray's Clutch Cumulus offering is built around Relativity One and backed by Murray's Clutch Information Management and Discovery Team. This cloud-based e-discovery service offers rapid scalability with state-of-the-art security. Murray's Clutch Team has delivered for the most sophisticated financial institutions in the world, highly regulated companies embroiled in bet-the-bank litigation or investigations with enormous troves of data, and they're ready to deliver value to your business. Transform your team and streamline your compliance and discovery process with Murray. We've got an in-depth two-part prediction to close out this episode. Um, your question is for the prediction. This is for our panel and, of course, our guest, Dave Cohen at Reed Smith. And, of course, we should get Ms. Sarunian to uh, opine on it as well. Which two musical artists do you predict will collaborate next is part A. Part B what will their first song be called? Yes, yeah, it's dead or alive. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I guess predictions. That's you know, if they're dead, sure. makes it a little bit harder. Yeah. But not impossible. All right, Daniel Pelk, you want to kick us off on this one? I do, and I thought long and hard about this one, David. Oh, all right. Uh, I wanted to pay homage to my hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, yeah. and my adopted hometown of Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I grabbed two different Steves. Uh, from Milwaukee, I have the Steve Miller Band. Uh-huh. And from Minneapolis, I have the unforgettable Steve Greenberg, who wrote Funky Town. Mm. Oh! So my song... <laughs> You're going to sing it, aren't you? Don't do it. Listen, listeners, you, for you, every listeners you could not see this. Lip but Constantine and I made eye contact. 
We were thinking about playing that song. The two but of you connected over Funky Town. That's awesome. Do we have a name for oh, the yeah, song? Oh, yeah, the name oh, for the, the song. Name. Yeah, that's the most important part. Yeah. Uh, the name of the song is Jet Airliner to Funky Town. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I see what you did there. You like that it? was good. I don't know if any of you need to do that. I think that one won. So. Mm. Yeah. You go. Oh, I go. Oh, I don't know. I, All right. I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> uh, so I picked two of my favorite sort of jump around, dance it out ladies, Lizzo and Taylor Swift. Oh, I love for, Taylor Swift. For uh, sort of the 2019. <laughs> literally. Let me just state that for the record. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, I was thinking the, the 2019 dance anthem of the summer. I, I really see this being big. Uh, I, I wanted to leave the name to them. I don't think that I can follow Danny anyway with the name. I, I'll let them take the creative license there. But I do see on the Lizzo side, a lot of hair tossing, nail checking. On the Taylor side, a lot of shaking it off. I just think yes. their styles would go together really well. I like it. Good synergy. I think so. Yes. All right. Counselor Puppis. Uh It's no shock to anyone that I'm a ridiculously rabid Paul McCartney fan, so I'm going to oh. pick him as one of my two, and I'm going to pick Gaga as the second Ooh, one. Like oh, strong. We could we could do paperback writer paparazzi or something like yep. that yeah. if you want to pick pick a name. But uh, I think we got two great uh, performers that could do something cool together. Constantine's a really big fan of that Shallow song also. I am not. <laughs> Can you sing a part of it for no. us? No. Oh, it's a bad song. You sing this song. Come on. Dave Cohen, we've had a veritable cornucopia of musical selections and perhaps juxtaposed pairs that should not be juxtaposed. How about your contribution, sir? Well, um, I'm going to go with... Um, Maybe the Dixie Chicks. Yeah, good call. And uh, Dolly Parton. Ah, uh, some, I like some that. Some older and some newer. And their uh, new song will be Can't We All Just Get Along in the Spirit of Cooperation. Oh, I like it. I like it. Well done. Very strong. Mm -hmm. I thought it was like Jolene Loves George Bush Jr. or something <laughs> like that. But um, yeah, Miss Sarunian, any thoughts on this one? <laughs> Well, this is just my, like my ultimate wish that would ever happen. I don't know if it's even possible because I don't think one of them's performing any longer. But Adele and Sam Smith, just ah. like the the most like heart wrenching concert you could ever be at, just sobbing the whole time. <laughs> I don't know what their song would be, but it would just make probably make me cry because they're just so great. Yeah, they are. All right, well, my only uh, thought in life is if we could play Funky Town during our closing credits. All right, maybe not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, David Cohen, partner, head of the Red Group at Reed Smith, thank you for spending an hour of your day with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for adding the insights and uh, having a little bit of fun with us as well. Did you have fun? You me, yeah. I didn't you know did a great job. But this was yeah. fun. <laughs> and, uh, thanks for joining us again today. Our relative and panelists were Constantine Pappas, Melinda Lee, and Daniel Pauk. Our guest was David Cohen of Reed Smith. Our host was David Horrigan, and our sponsor was Murray Global. Thanks to a few folks who made Uncivil Procedure possible and civil. Nicholas Matijic, sound and recording engineer. Sam Bach, Blair Heidenreich, and Julie Huner were the masterminds behind some of the material you heard today. Tammy Yosovic is our casting director. Carl Sandrol created our theme music. Gus Tsatsakis created our visual brand. Brendan Ryan is our podcast creator and executive producer. Sean Gaines is our podcast marketing overlord. And I'm Anna Srunian, your David Horgan Wrangler, and we'll see you next time on Uncivil Procedure. 
Continue the Uncivil Procedure conversation on social media via Twitter and Instagram. Just follow us at UncivPropodcast. Tag your thoughts with the hashtag UncivilProcedure and connect with our panelists in the Uncivil Procedure discussion group on the Relativity community. Oh, a DeVry commercial. Oh, man, I was going to have Funky Town playing, and now it's not the DeVry Institute of Technology. It's expletive-deleted DeVry University. I think we have our post-credits. Yeah, uh, man, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear Funky Town.